Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. It's me, Cindy House. I am the boss and the host of this podcast, and I'm here with Lizzie No. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, I'm Lizzie No, and I'm seizing the means of production from my boss and overlord, Cindy Oppressor House. That's right. You just let that sink in. Oh, yeah. The guillotine is coming for Cindy. She's lived high on the hog for way too long. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so first of all, before we get into any of this nonsense... Um, excuse me. The revolution of the working class is not nonsense, Cindy. Agreed. Before we get into it, uh, <laughs> David Wax Museum, both Suze and David are on the podcast today. And we're going to get into that momentarily. Also, uh, if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, you can do so at our website, basicfolk.com. You can also become a contributing member to the podcast and help us survive and thrive in this capitalist economy. <laughs> or you can follow us on social media at basicfolkpod. So you were saying something and it reminded me of socialism. And it reminded me that um, my wife was like, we should watch Chernobyl. Like she's been. It's a good it's a good show. Ever since we got together, she's like, we should watch Chernobyl. And I'm like, I don't think I want to. It's very intense and graphic and scary. We watched the first episode mm -hmm. and it was all of that mm -hmm. and more. 
and I don't want to watch any more of it, but I feel like I might. I, I feel like I might. I loved the show, and it's haunting and and horrible. And a real story. Yeah, that, that's what's hard when it's a real story. You can't be like, it's just TV. It, it's not just TV. I also just watched Charlie Wilson's War. Does that have Tom Hanks? Yeah, Tom Hanks, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Woo! and Julia Roberts. Oh, and like fantastic. Another, and like a great cast and a devastating, beautiful film. Wow. Also real life. I will watch that. I will watch that. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else is happening, Lizzie? Um, lots is happening. I feel like I am deep in music discovery mode, going to shows mm-hmm. and uh, using streaming services to find new music. It's so inspiring. Can I rattle off some really great artists I've been listening to lately? I wish you would. Okay. The band Sweetbreads, they are an indie band out of New York. So amazing. Um, Christian Wallowing Bowl, Dave Scanlon, Olivia Ellen Lloyd, and Fuensanta. All like relatively new to me. Olivia is like a good buddy of mine, um, but I've just been doing a deep dive on her music and it's so great. It like really feels renewing to hear new music that you just like deeply resonate with. It's such a good mm. feeling. And I hate when people say resonate, but I just said it. <laughs> you have to. You have to. I mean, what else could you say? I like to hear music that I deeply enjoy. How about that? Have you heard the new Feist album? No. Is it good? I mean, of course it's yeah, good. <laughs> I, of co- yeah. That's one of those things where like, of course it's good, but then you listen to it. Every time I listen to a new Feist album, I'm like, wow. Feist is so great. <laughs> Vibe King. I just drove like 15 hours in one day are you a touring musician you know what honestly lizzie next time you need a driver hit me up i'm ready to go dude i i would love that i feel like the great secret of touring is that if you didn't have to drive yourself it would become so much easier and so america's greatest love story yeah i can't (laughs) wait to get to that level of success well, while I was driving, I have like a, you know, front loaded a bunch of like murdery podcasts and stuff to Ooh. listen to because it's like, it's kind of like when you're working out, you're like, I got to listen to Maroon 5, you know, you got to do what you got to do to like keep it going. Yeah. I think for long drives, you need a murdery podcast because you need to believe like there's a someone with a knife behind you. So you'll like stay away. <laughs> <laughs> But the I listened to a non-murdery podcast that I wanted to share with people. It's called Leftover. It's about um, the school lunch programs. So it's called Leftover, How Corporations and Politicians Are Milking the American School Lunch. Oh, and it my is gosh. riveting. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I definitely want to listen to that. We are really just like taking down the system today, aren't we? That's right. Oh, speaking of which, I'm reading a really, really good book called Confronting Capitalism by Vivek Chibber. It is, I like recently decided, like, let me learn more about these leftist beliefs that I hold. And it's a really great, like, for a general, like, general public explainer on, like, what is capitalism? What does that mean? Because so many times people are like, oh, that's just capitalism. But really what they mean is, like, markets or exchanging goods for services and they're not the same so i'm learning about literally what is capitalism awesome okay and we'll take a quick break now to uh recognize that today 
the release date of this podcast is May 4th, which means it's <laughs> Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you, Lizzie. Can I go to the bathroom while you do this section of the podcast? Because I do not care about Star Wars. <laughs> well, I like Star Wars slash love Star Wars, but I'm, but like casually, not like, um, you know, I don't have any action figures. That's actually revolutionary. It's revolutionary to be casual about things that others are passionate about. Like I used to watch Game of Thrones all out of order and skip episodes and people would be like, what? How dare you? And I'm like, guys, it's just a show. <laughs> they clutched their pearls. It's just a show. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Go on about Star Wars. Well, the, I just wanted to say that um, my favorite character is Princess Leia and I just absolutely love Carrie Fisher. I'm so sad that she died and it was it was like that year where like everyone was dying. That was Remember? a really bad year. Yeah. 2016. Like Prince died that year, I think. Yep, and David Bowie mm-hmm. and Leonard Cohen. Horrible year. But yeah, Carrie Fisher was amazing. Yeah, watching her one woman show Wishful Drinking and then that documentary that came out, I think it was on HBO. It was about her and her mom the very famous actor Debbie Reynolds. They lived right next door to each other and had this like very intense relationship because Carrie Fisher was like actively dealing with her mental health problems and like an overbearing mom that like loved her so, so much. Anyways, anything you can get your hands on Carrie Fisher would recommend. So great. So funny. Also her appearance on 30 Rock so funny so funny i'll say it 30 rock holds up i want to say something though i don't think 30 rock holds up really yeah i feel like now i watch tina fey things and i'm like i can't stand behind it anymore here's my pitch for why 30 rock holds up that show was always about an upwardly mobile well-intentioned slightly clueless hilarious white woman and it still is about that and that character is still hilarious and relevant to, to me. Like, I feel like mm. all of, like, there's so many jokes that people are like, you should take these off Netflix because they're offensive. It's still funny that these people were ignorant. Like, I think the joke is on them when they have ignorant jokes. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, I do, I do. it's not promoting a political agenda. Like, I wouldn't trust any of the characters of 30 Rock to say, like, run a public school or, like, <laughs> I don't know, like run the government, but they are like funny examples of like very real personalities that come out of the like American political consciousness. So I still mm. support 30 Rock. It's like, yes, let's laugh at them because it's fun. You've convinced me. I will go watch it right after this interview with the David Wax Museum. We love David Wax Museum. Yes. So David and Suze have both been on separately on Basic Folk, and now they are on together talking about this album that they're calling their magnum opus, You Must Change Your Life. Okay, magnum opus, I see it in two ways with this album. Number one, it is about like dealing with love and mortality in a way that it seems like they've been building up to over the course of several albums. Like it is some of... I think their best writing on life and death and love. So that's like magnum opus material for sure. And then there's also this really thoughtful relationship with Mexican folk music 
as American artists. And that's something that they've been doing like since they became a band. And it's just done so beautifully on this album that I feel like, yeah, this is who they are as a band. It was so cool to go track by track on this album with them. Yeah. So let's do it. We're going to listen to like snippets of the album throughout the interview. Um, The album is called You Must Change Your Life. And if you're listening in real time, the record is out tomorrow. But if you're listening after May 5th, it's already out. So let's get into it. This is David Wax Museum on Basic Folk. Change your life. You must change your life. You must change your life. You must change your life. everybody we've got everyone in attendance lizzie is here david is here Suze is here welcome back to the podcast david and Suze. it's so nice to see you guys thank, thank you, you so, much. so much for having us back i felt a little trepidation about reaching out again with this new record because i was like oh we just we were did she feel like we were just on but no then i was like there's so much to talk about and i thought it'd be so fun if we all got to do it together Yeah. Well, yeah. And I didn't get to be involved in those previous interviews. So now I can insert my biases. Can't wait. Also, I was thinking about this. I feel like the David Wax Museum at some point is going to do some kind of festival or workshop in Mexico. And Lizzie and I want to be there as the podcast that uh, is on site. Okay, great. You said it first. Yeah. Great. Yeah, we can be the on-site interviewers. Poolside is the adjective that describes my spirituality. Mm. <laughs> Me, mine too. Coincidentally. Okay, this album, You Must Change Your Life. If you're listening in real time, it's out tomorrow. But if you're listening after the, our episode release date, it's out now. Um, before we get into the songs track by track, I have a very long question to ask Um, the both of you actually. So David had a near-death experience around Thanksgiving of 2022. Is that what you would call it, near-death experience? It depends on who you're asking. An event. So to sum it up very simply, David passed out on a treadmill, hit his head in several places. Suze found him. He seemingly died in Suze's arms. He came to... Uh, went to the hospital, and that has led to many months of uncertainty, lots of rest, lots of tests, lots of doctors, and most likely a newfound relationship with death. And you guys sent us some press material for this album. Um, In making this new album, which you call your magnum opus, it's like the record, the one that you dream about when you first fall in love with music. That's what you say. And then on the way home from completing... A big part of the new album, Suze made a comment to David, if we died in a car crash during the drive home, it would be okay. Interesting. Um, Thinking about these two major life events, 
especially Suze, because you were there. David was out to lunch during this near-death experience. How has death evolved for you? When you say something like that, like, it's okay if we die right now because we made this album, it, it's sort of said tongue-in-cheek, but you can't really say that type of thing <laughs> jokingly. So I think um, when we left that studio, this was already several years ago, we hadn't really ever felt as proud of something and as kind of, what's the highest of Maslow's pyramid? Self-actualized. I feel like we hadn't felt quite as self-actualized as a band um, until that moment driving away from there. When David fell um, or collapsed in the over Thanksgiving um, and I rushed down, he was convulsing and then you know, and then stopped. And I thought, I thought he had died in my arms. And, um, you know, this sense of, oh, nightmares can happen um, in front of your eyes. And I was really blessed to not have that nightmare uh, continue because he sat up a few minutes later, but was rushed to the hospital and they thought he had a heart attack. And, you know, it was these pretty scary um, days and weeks that followed that. Um, but since then, I've done a lot of thinking about death, and um, it's gotten less scary um, to hold hold him in that moment and realize this could happen right now. Um, a few weeks, a few months later, our son had a fever, and he had this moment. I've just been writing about this this moment of looking like he had died in my arms. So it happened like twice. Zeus. Scary period. And he like popped right back up. But to see someone you love like with their life gone out of their eyes. So, um, so alarming. And, you know, A, it makes you feel like, oh, you get to be living in 2023 in America. And um, we don't have to face this on a day-to-day basis. But also just the um, perspective it gives on this incredible life that we have, that we've created, that we've very intentionally created. Um, we've chosen to let our our peers have gone to fancy schools and are, have fancy jobs now, and we have chosen to have a less fancy job, but now we get to make these beautiful works of art together and um, bring our children with us and it felt quite poignant to um, to be in the hospital and David kind of looking at the doctors saying what he has, has now written about, you know, I would have feel okay if I had gone knowing that this album exists. That was a long answer to an impossible question. Oh, I like, like sh- shivers listening to that. Yeah, I don't think I was ready to think about the people I love, having the light go out of their eyes. But it's the truth for all of us. Mm. It's not likely, it's certain. Wow. Okay, well, let's get into the album. First track is actually the title track, You Must Change Your Life. It comes from Archaic Torso of Apollo by Rainer Maria, help me with the last name. Rilke. Rilke. How have you both contemplated the changes you've experienced alongside that incredible last line of that piece, you must change your life. Well, one of the things that I was thinking about a lot in the hospital and when, when I kind of had this health scare was you kind of imagine that there might be a time in your life when that happens. And it's like, for some people, it's like this come to Jesus moment where you 
realize, oh, you have to like, you're going to regret all these things if you, if you don't change all these things in your life. And I, I really was kind of a little taken aback that I didn't have that feeling. And I think it's because I've, I've had these kind of radical transformative moments in my life that I think shifted everything for me and got me pointed on a path that I feel like I'm on the right path. And so for me, that was kind of first going down to Mexico and the impact that had on kind of reorienting my life and then meeting Susan, falling in love and kind of making this really radical transformation to be like, all right, we're going to do this together and this is what our life's going to be going forward. And so I, I feel well acquainted with that, those moments of when you know you need to change okay. your life. I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's what I've always resonated with that poem because at, at the core, it's about our interaction with art. And it's about like what happens when the, po- the poet sees this headless statue, but feels like even without a head, the statue is looking inside him and sees him. And his, his life can't be the same after that kind of powerful interaction with art where it just like knows you and knows you intimately and exposes something about who you are and what it means to be alive. And so I feel like that has been a guiding star of like the power of art and believing in art and kind of to keep us on this path and to keep us energized. And, you know, I think you just have to believe in this transcendent magical thing happening when we make and and interact with art. to your next track best lover what was the first form that that song took what did the demo sound like and can we hear the story behind how that bass sound came to be we've we tried to record this song so many times um and we we couldn't we couldn't get it right and we were playing it live in like a real sunny like this is like a summer sunny upbeat song and the little guitar riff was like sounded like here comes the sun and and it was working live, but when we went into the studio, it had that thing that happens sometimes where you just, the live version that works just doesn't translate into the studio and it sounds smaller and underwhelming. And so even when we went back in the studio again to try it with Dan Malad, we tried that first version and it wasn't working and we kind of almost like we're going to give up again. It was like our fourth time trying to record this song. And he had just recently finished working with J.D. McPherson. And so I think he had this kind of ear towards like a more rockabilly approach, like kind of oriented, like let's go more of this retro approach and slow it down a little bit and kind of get a little bit of more of the sexy swagger of it and like explore a different side to kind of move it away from being so sunny and bright because it's, it's a more complex song than just a sunny and bright pop song. I have this sense about that song that it feels like only um, someone in their 40s could write it um, <laughs> who's married who's married, and kind of get away with that, um, you know, to kind of have a, a, a song that's devoted to honoring and longing for a lover that you never quite had. 
Um, and I, I love that about being in <laughs> one's forties and, um, you know, being able to delve into these, you know, qu- questions and thoughts and fantasies that might've been triggery as a younger person or as a younger couple and, um, being able to go there and go there on stage and, you know, one of the beauties and vulnerabilities of being in a partnership with your artistic partner is that you have to um, accept songs written about all their feelings (laughs) and you have to sing songs about all their feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that can get very sticky, you know, when he's writing about all these other women's names, for example, like who is that person? And, um, And when he's promising that it's just about this character in a novel he just read, but you're like, yeah, but that detail, I'm pretty sure I said that to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I feel like um, Best Lover is a, a wonderful example of like we can both embody someone who had that lover and we can pretend like we were that person for each other, even though we weren't because we're current lovers. And I, I feel like there's lots of complexity that can be enacted on stage. <laughs> the next song Luann uh a question for for Suze actually so like this song celebrates the lover as a badass, powerful woman. And that one's definitely me. me. That one is definitely me. Okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, no, just you know, question answered. <laughs> da- you know, from David's perspective, it's like obviously that song's going to be about Suze, but like, Suze, to you, who is, who is the woman? We have this wonderful um, mentor who's one of the most eccentric people we know and love. And um, he, always wanted us to bleach our hair blonde and go platinum like back in our 20s when we were still like um well we're we still dress in old clothes from (laughs) the goodwill but anyway he um wanted us to be really extreme versions of ourselves or larger than life and he said that's why people go to the theaters to see they don't want to see you they want to see this you know mythical version of the feminine masculine in our case or or whatever versions of ourselves um we aren't in real life. And um, yeah, to me, Luann is just this um, kind of like the um, Dylan song. She's an artist and she won't look back. What's that one called? The song is called Don't Look Back. Don't Look Back. (laughs) So, you know, I guess to me, Luann is just this, yeah, the mythical version of myself or of any of us um, that we can only tap into sometimes and hope hope to tap into (laughs) as often as possible. Mine is named Lizzie No. I'm very familiar with that person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a different question about Luann, which is how did you record those harmonies that sound so compressed and cool? There's something in your press notes about a telephone. The telephone vocals were the ones that are kind of panted in the background. Oh, wow. (laughs) So those ones were through the telephone. Um, so there, you li- someone was literally on the phone. Me? No, there's a did special type of we we did it. We both did it. Oh, I'm glad you. David's here. My memory of most things detail oriented when I had small children is very faint. 
I, I sang into a telephone, you're saying? It was, it's a special type of telephone microphone that gives you like a real lo-fi. You like purposely are looking for a lo-fi color in your vocal. Um, and it was one of the many tools and tricks of Dan Malad. And he, I mean, I don't, I think all that incredible vocal compression sound is his kind of post mixing. Cause I don't remember when we, I was recording it, that was not what I heard in my ears, but he's just uh, a brilliant uh, engineer, producer, mixer. And so he kind of really latched onto that sound um, and we loved it instantly when he sent it to us and, and like we were surprised that was not how I'd imagined it, but it just like gave it a fierceness and like a, an edge. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like a magical static. That's really cool about that song. Yeah. There's a lot. I mean, it's fun with your questions and I didn't give Dan enough credit for that bass. I mean, that's his bass part. He just kind of was like, all right, we're going to try this vibe and change the chords up like this. And I've got this six string bass and he just, that was one of the, the few things he brought with him from LA was just this six string bass. And it was like, you know, something that you're just going to play a more melodic bass line on. And then that hook was just him doing that. So, you know, it was just kind of, I think that's one of the things that was just so magical. We've, we've worked with so many amazing producers. That's just been, we've been so fortunate. Um, but it was so exciting with this record. Just feel like these songs align so well with him and his gifts and the band that we're assembling and kind of where we're at in our kind of arc of maturity and sonic kind of evolution. It's just like everything just synced up so perfectly. Lulco is a song that explicitly tells the audience to dance. I have found in my touring life that a lot of U.S. audiences, particularly folksy audiences, are resistant to getting their bodies involved when it comes to witnessing live music. So how do you, how have you cultivated an audience that's able to hang? And like, how have you gotten over that barrier and that cultural difference where like people are sort of like sit quietly and clap quietly, like when you're bringing to the table this music that's very uh, body-centered? It's a great question. It's something we still struggle with a lot. I don't think we've cracked that code. Um, and, I, and it's interesting because I used to have a really antagonistic relationship about it with the audience where I would kind of like be mad they weren't moving and I would kind of get ornery and like get try to like figure out ways to get them to, to kind of get over that, that um, internal barrier that they have as an American audience because like you're saying it's just in so many of the different folk music scenes in America it's just like it's just not part of it and we just like have lost that it's part of our culture that's kind of atrophied but it was something that when I was in Mexico I just loved because it was like all right here's the dance steps everybody does it like it's essential you can't do music without the dancers like nobody the guys the folk musicians wouldn't do it they'd just be like it's like you take out you know you cut off someone's arm it's like it just right. doesn't, music needs that. Um, it's supposed to be where the wood is. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, I think we've, we knew and we've, we've connected with an audience that has been drawn to the kind of the Latin rhythms of the band. And that's been kind of an explicit part of what we've been doing since the beginning. 
And I think that that for the people that are primed and ready and like want to have that kind of musical dance experience, like we've got it for them. And they've kind of been drawn to the band and have provided that element to our shows. And I think we knew at some point when we started off so much um, more in the kind of seated theater folk club vibe and we just knew this is weird. The bigger the band gets and the more dancey we get, the, that, that disconnection is really jarring. And so I think it's just kind of figuring out, well, that works fine if it's just Suze and I playing the folk show for that crowd. But if we're going to, you know, have the full band and it's going to be this real, like leaning into the dance music that we're so heavily drawing on, then we need to figure out the right place for that and kind of tailor the set to that. But I remember this one um, chapter of the band when David's cousin Jordan Wax, who's an incredible musician, and person uh, was touring with us and for one song that we were determined to get people dancing for he would he would jump off stage into the front of the audience and he had these three or four dance move sequences that he would teach we'd like stop the music he'd jump down he'd teach the audience these four moves and then he'd lead them in that dance and jump back on stage and we'd play the band the song and I feel like we could could try that again (laughs) felt successful the mighty mighty bostones has had their own dancer on stage to teach everyone yeah Yeah. we just we need that help as an american audience we just we're, we're kind of kind of hopeless sometimes it seems like i know love is coming for you you tell yourself it can't be true I know love is coming for you, be patient. The song Be Patient seems to be doling out some advice about patience. Um, Who are you guys talking to in this song? Like, what is your hope for the intended listener and their understanding of patience? And then how did it help your relationship to patience to write this song? It came out of just all these incredible female friends that I had kind of in in my mid-30s to now that they were all like so ready to find love and to have partners and have kids. And they'd kind of, I felt like when I would talk to them, they don't, it seemed like they'd given up hope on that. And I was just like, I just knew deep down that like they were, how incredible they were and that, that they were going to find it and it was going to work out. And I just like, that's who how I was certainly channeling when I was thinking about who I'm singing to when I wrote those lyrics. But I think that this was the first song we worked on with Dan Molad, and we went out to L.A. as kind of just a, let's just do a song together and see how it goes. And it seemed like something we could cut in a day because it was, you know, it's a pretty straightforward song. And while we were working on it um, in the studio in L.A., we were getting uh, texts, and seeing everything on the front page of news of all the newspapers in the world because it was the day of the Unite the Right hate rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, in our hometown. So I, I can't, now I can't like separate the song out from that because the making of it was us trying to kind of at the same moment as all this terrible stuff was going on in our hometown to try to kind of put out in the world this really simple offering of love and patience and, and hope for something brighter beyond where we were at that moment. Yesterday, not to make light of that, because that is as dark as it gets, but um, it's also become such a great, easy, hooky line to sing 
to you, for instance, I was going to text you that song yesterday. David's just like chomping at the bit for this band to be even bigger and then bigger than that. He has so much ambition and drive and is never enough. Um, so yesterday I'm just like, I was going to send you that song and I was going to send you Don't Lose Heart, another song of ours. Oh my um, God. Has Suze done that before, David? Or she'll send you your <laughs> own songs and be like, hey buddy, check it out. I stopped myself yesterday. I knew he would not take it. Um, That's the worst, but it's also the humor. best. Right. Be patient. But I am a man of flesh and bone. I don't want to lose everything I know. Okay, how did your engagement with Huapango music inform the rhythmic instincts that you leaned into on the song Desire. The song Desire is musically almost a carbon copy of Las Flores from the Huapango tradition, but it's not a rhythmic copy. Um, the rhythm of the Huapango music is so specific, and I've found that it's been harder to translate that rhythm into the context of the band. It's just people, I, I mean, I spent years trying to learn it. it. At the core, it's very, you could say, oh, it's very simple, it's just this. But it's, but it's like, it's, it's so tricky. tricky. It's so tricky. And so it's hard, to, it's hard, I found it's hard to write to it and it's hard to kind of maintain it. And then it has so many dr- dramatic flourishes that they've built off of it as if once you've built that, um, once you get the foundation, then they take it off on so many different directions. And so, but that was kind of my entryway into the Wapangera that I play on that song. And I've just developed such a love of that instrument. And I think, gosh, there's, this is such a beautiful, deep bodied sound that I think when they play it in that traditional way, as much as I love that, it, it loses something that has drawn me to that instrument the more I play it. And so it felt really, I felt inspired when I was just finger picking the Wapangera. And so when I would just finger pick it in a much more gentle way in 6-8, but in a more straighter pattern, in a straighter rhythmic feel, I felt like, oh, you can just hear the instrument in a different way. And the way these chord changes happen over it, you can, they're kind of deceptively simple, but there's just like an elegance to it. And so that was just one of those things that I've, I find a song that I've just been playing for years and I love it and I've played it in Spanish and then I kind of slow it down or change the rhythmic feel and then I kind of can find my own way into it. And so that certainly happened with Las Flores. You know, the traditional song is this, it's more of like an ode to the lover and he's comparing her to these flowers and it's kind of using the flower imagery as a way to talk about the beauty of his lover. And I think initially when I started working with these songs and bringing them into the context of the Wax Museum, you know, I, I would try like a translation of a song and that was kind of my way in to find my foothold there. But I think the more that I've been doing it and the more that I've found my voice and kind of my own approach to it, it's like, oh, no, I, the more I kind of uh, listen to what the song is telling me and what I'm, I'm kind of, when I start uh, improvising over these rhythms and kind of have the source material that's inspired me, but then kind of put that in one place and then see where it takes me on my own kind of personal journey with it. I was in the hospital room with my with my dad when he had this health scare a couple years ago and I was working on the lyrics and and that's where the the song kind of lyrically came out of for me oh how you waiting patient 
patient as a cancer Waiting how you were Calm as everything else burns Blazing like a forest Your laughter's go around Moon burn white Ashes cold Upon the ground What night in Richmond All right, let's talk about scandals. The next song, That Night in Richmond, is about an affair from the perspective of the adulterer. It's a sympathetic song, which is a hard thing to offer someone who is committing such an act of betrayal, at least in my opinion. But can you talk about the decision to write a song that's giving a cheater space to work through their feelings. You want to try to take that or you? No. <laughs> David, this is all you. I didn't write this song. I, I can talk about yesterday, but y- <laughs> you should take a stab at this song. Um, yeah, I wasn't, I think I wasn't sure how the, how this song was going to play out, but I had that line for years and years, that night in Richmond when you told me you loved me. And I had this image of these um, two people falling in love, and but they're kind of like the agony of like wanting to slow it down, um, and like knowing that at this moment, like it it causes so much destruction and heartbreak, and and because of the betrayal at the core of it, and I think that I've certainly been drawn to that. In that's you know that's a I think there's some common theme in a lot of art where it's like something beautiful that that comes out of a lot of pain and um heartbreak and so that's you kind of want to try to create a space for all that to coexist i think in a great work of art and so it seemed like you know trying to i I didn't want to put the adulterer or whatever in that context like up on some pedestal or just have it be about the incredible love that he's feeling or that they're feeling but I, I feel like I had to like put that in a place where that that is happening. There is something beautiful occurring, but it's in the context of and swirled up with all the pain that is part of it and inseparable from it. So trying to kind of honor it and hold a place for both those to, to be there. The other bookend to that part of the story is Only One's Awake, which is like the joyful, giddy, I can't believe it's real um, feeling of falling in love with someone that you're not supposed to. The feeling of that song and the story and this, like the scenery of it reminds me a lot about being on tour where you're like, I can't believe I get to do this for my job. Like when it's good, when it's not drudgery. What does it feel like? Or have you performed that song live? How does it like interact with your feelings about being on tour? We've just started playing it live and it's 
so incredibly fun. I, I was sort of convinced myself that I wouldn't like it because it's going to be too fast and too harsh and it's going to be too loud. I just, I wasn't sure I was going to be into it, but I'm very into it. It's, um, it is so exuberant. We have this wonderful videographer friend who is working on a music video and his take on this, which is one, one way to, to hear it is um, through the eyes of our kids who come on tour and them being like, we're the only ones awake in the world. You know, the kids <laughs> awake in the world tonight. Um, so I feel like there's lots of uh, different possible spins, but it's been really exhilarating to play that one live. And it ends so abruptly and um, it's, it's so juicy. I haven't, I hadn't thought about it yet in kind of like the context of tour or musician life. I hadn't like, um, it's going to be interesting to perform it now thinking about that. Um, it is very much, I, I feel like it's just a very, I feel like maybe I, I heard, I read something like that had a, f- a phrase of in that, of that ilk. And I was like, oh yeah, God, I know that feeling exactly where you feel like at two or three in the morning and you really feel like it seems like everyone else in the world is asleep now and we have the kind of the world to ourselves right now and it's ours. And so I wanted to like, oh yeah, I know that feeling. I know what it feels like. And it's going to, this song is just going to like have so much energy. It's almost like you have the run of the, the world and it's all yours. And so I wanted to kind of like pack all that in and get it as fast as possible and as quickly as possible. And at some point, like I couldn't even play some of the parts we tried to overdub because it was so fast. And so we had to slow the song down so that I could play the p- play the piano part because I could not keep up with it. Um, but then, of course, then when you speed it back up, it, it gives it the piano down. a really weird, cool sound. You know, so I've had, I've had to, cool. you know that you know the little like ah, ah, mm-hmm. <laughs> to like you know you play that in the studio and they might have slowed it down too for that. They might have. And now, of course, you're on stage you're like oh, I gotta actually learn this. Um, but I can work. I've been working on it. The song Hey Annie, David, you're paying tribute to the bands of the British invasion who blew my world wide open back in junior high in mid-Missouri. It's bands like the Kinks. Um, How did you discover that sound? How did it change your life? And then how do you relate to that feeling now? The the Beatles were the entryway for me, like I think a lot of people. And then you kind of like, well, who who were they in dialogue with? Who who what other music was happening then? What were they listening to? And then it kind of like you start, kind of like the, I don't know, yeah, the flower just blossoms, and you start realizing that there's this like whole world of music that came before you, that you maybe have heard some of those songs on oldies radio or something, but you don't those like incredibly cool bands with deep catalogs. And so, yeah, I loved, I loved that music. And I think it was, I just wasn't keyed into music at all. Or at that point, you know, I, I think like I was listening to like, not, not there's anything wrong with Paul Abdul, but I just like, you know, I just wasn't curious about music that much. I was just like listening to my family. We listened to uh, the theme songs of like oldies uh, TV shows or something. That was like the tape we'd listen to in the car. And we, my, my mom listened to a lot of, yeah. Like a lot of musicals, like great, great music that I think taught me a lot about music and storytelling, but it didn't feel like mine or it didn't, you know, it wasn't like I sought it out. But with this music, with like the British invasion and and kind of the Beatles being the gateway into that, it was like, 
oh my God, like this is what music is. I could like kind of like realize that you could do that. Like that's how you would want to express yourself or that that spoke to me. Um, and, and I think also like growing up in the Midwest, like there just wasn't anything like that at the time. Like later as I got older and in high school, then like I realized, oh my God, there's this incredible flourishing alt country scene that we're kind of in the crossroads here in Missouri. Like everyone's touring through here from Minneapolis to Austin and incredible bands came through and they were also all influenced by that too. The old 97s and the Jayhawks and Wilco like are all drawing on these same kind of inspiration points. But yeah, it feels so exciting to be able to kind of, yeah, pull, pull off a song and kind of, it felt like the closest we've come to like our doing our own version of what that would sound like through, through this band's lens. There's something about it that I guess I'd, I'll admit that it, like, I feel like it feels out of place a little bit on the record at, at moments to me. Um, or like it has such a unique character that I, in my mind, I think of it as a little different than the rest of the record. But when we were like having to think about, could we cut anything? I just was like, oh, this is going to be so fun to play. I can't cut this. Like, it's just, it just feels like a perfect little pop song. And I just want, I want to be able to play that live. in gold is inspired by it's like it's a traditional song la indita and that song is tricky i there's a line in it that goes de que me sirve ser jardinero si ni una rosa puedo cortar which means what's the use of being a gardener if i can't even cut a rose and given what we know now about power and the colonial gaze i think that what a lot of mainstream american artists have done in musical history is to like go to other cultures, pluck all the roses, give no credit. Do you guys have best practices for engaging thoughtfully um, and curiously with musical traditions that you didn't grow up in? Like how do you cultivate the garden without cutting the roses when it comes to engaging with Mexican uh, folk traditions? It's a great question. It's one that I've been thinking about a lot, I, kind of for the last 20 years, but kind of particularly as as we kind of continue to go back to this well that just feels like it's never ending. And so I, and I feel like, Oh my gosh, like I I feel so, um, yeah, hyper aware of kind of what it means to be someone outside of that tradition, kind of realizing how privileged I am in the position I am to like, Oh, I can just kind of come in here and then get, go out. And that's, it doesn't work the other way around. It's so much, it's infinitely more complex for them to come to America to like, I'm coming at it from a position of, yeah, like a, a middle-class white kid that is just, um, I, I think, trying to be cognizant of that at all times, of where I'm coming from, trying to realize that it's just a, it's a whole world. It's not just the music. It's tied up into every aspect of life. For me, I think that that's been a, a piece of it where it's not, I'm just not going to all these different cultures and kind of trying to, you know, find something cool and put it in our cool band. It's like, well, what is it? what does this music mean? Um, I, I just, music is inseparable from identity and people kind of expressing what it means to be alive and in community, um, especially folk music, especially music that's been played and is still played and has been played for hundreds of years in a community. So I think that it's trying to honor that and to 
for the last 20 years, I've been kind of going back and forth and continuing to try to kind of build community and to learn more about the culture and the history and to understand kind of what you're talking about. There's just, I think, especially in the Son Harocha world, there is a certain guardedness and there's a, it's been harder for me to find my entry point there in terms of building community. I think they've been, they're a little skeptical of outsiders because of all that history and now it's become hip. And so it's attracting more people from the city. And, you know, I think when they, I've gotten all, every reaction across the board of people just like loving it, getting it, feeling like this is incredible that you're honoring the tradition and bringing it to a new audience and keeping it alive. And, and then I've had people that haven't said it, but I've kind of sensed like a more accusatory, like who are you to kind of take our music or what, what are you offering in return? Or so, I think some of it's just trying to understand how com how complex that all those pieces are. Um, it's felt great when we've had Mexican bands collaborate with us, open up for us, and like be able to share their music with our audience, to be able to constantly kind of turn people on to this music and to kind of you know really show people where the music's coming from. I don't know if there's an easy answer to it. You know, I think that I just know that this is the only reason I'm making music. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have gone on this path if I hadn't gotten introduced to this music and had it changed my life. And so I know that I wouldn't be here doing this if I hadn't fallen in love with this music and, and, and through the music and through this rich tradition been able to find my own voice and feel like I had something to contribute and uh, wanted to be part of the conversation by bringing this, this music and the richness of these rhythms and the beauty of these song structures and kind of bring it into... Um, kind of my 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 music culture and so I then I was like oh I'm excited about music and the arts if I'm doing it like this way so I know that that's that's the path I'm on and I don't have an easy answer of like how do you do that gracefully and uh, respectfully and authentically like just the best I can and being open about that and trying to always see like can I do it better can I do, can I do anything else to lift up these other bands to to give back in a way, and I'm, I'm still figuring that out. Walking down the streets, you know, whoa. All you make these days is a cameo, whoa. The next song, Your Heart's a Piñata, in your track by track, you wrote, this song is the chill counterpoint to You Must Change Your Life. It's the sultry and sad side of the coin when you feel like something has to give and you don't know if it takes more courage to stay or go. So you two already have like a full dance card. You've got the band. You have the new studio that looks amazing, by the way. Um, you've got the kids. Suze has been pretty public documenting her um, journey with mental health. Now there's this thing with David's health, um, which it seems like you've handled from afar. You know, who knows what it's like in reality, except for you two. You've handled with a lot of grace and patience. So how does like adding different stressors like David's health scare and all that uncertainty that comes along with it make you feel about other uncertainties that life will surely send your way. Like, there is a time and a place for songs like Your Heart is a Piñata, but how do you not drown in that? I feel like um, coming from an experience of a pretty significant 
mental illness diagnosis in my 20s, a bipolar disorder diagnosis after experiencing extreme mania and extreme depression, forced me to tackle the very biggest questions early on, like, who am I if I'm not my brain? Who am I if sometimes I'm up here and sometimes I'm down here? Like, how would you even say, how would you even answer a personality test when you're like, well, are you asking me today or next week? And, you know, tackling just the the biggest questions of how to cope in a human body on this planet. So I feel a little bit of this sense of like, bring it on. Because there is, I mean, A, we have had the most incredibly lucky, gifted life you could possibly imagine. This studio that um, Cindy's referencing is this beautiful small wooden cathedral full of light we're in it right now it has all these little nooks and balconies and lofts we had a band staying here last night we have an irish band coming on tour staying tonight we have another (laughs) band staying here tomorrow we're kind of able to give back and share this space now after having so many spaces shared with us Um, but the building itself to me feels like this testament of all the goodness of people giving back to us after, you know, we've traveled around the country for 16 years in a minivan and then in a, now a bigger van and um, kind of exchanged energy and art and music and singing with people. And during the pandemic, um, they exchanged back with us their cash and their capital and helped us build this beautiful space. And the fact that we've been able to pull off being married, having amazingly stable kids, um, not having another job for 16 years um, through incredible support of our community that we've built. The like gift part is so, so huge and abundant. And I feel like obviously things like David's health scare are going to happen. And as you said in the beginning, Lizzie, like everyone has an end point of this physical life. So that's all coming our way. So to pretend like it's not is problematic. Um, you know, part of my extreme depression in my 20s was kind of seeing the kind of incredible environmental destruction coming our way and realizing that if I didn't come up with a way to deal with that, I was going down too. And I did go down into severe depression. Um, So I feel like my whole adult life has been trying to figure out how do you continue to wake up, continue to eat, continue to do these basic things and hold all that scary stuff in there too and for me it's been a real not in a bubble that crappy stuff doesn't exist but um, I've had to really decide very intentionally to focus on this small thing that we're doing our two small people these songs going from one town to another finding a place to stay getting food from so many generous people um, keeping my focus very small but also to me that's very deep and divine um, and holy to, to focus on those small things
a very small and specific question about Go Break Some Hearts. Suze, how did you record those vocal triples? Um, They sound remarkably uniform. Like most doubles, you'll hear a little bit of variation, but even for those triples, they sound very much the same. I, I read in your press pack that the song was still being written when you started recording it. And it kind of putting myself in your shoes, I'm like, huh, how do you go from the songs half written to it's so dialed in that you can sing it three times exactly the same? Like, how did you shape that that vocal recording? I, I think I've always been critical of myself because I don't I feel like I don't have a voice that's like X, Y, or Z. I'm not going to point out these beautiful singers that I know, but who have so much rate, kind of d- dynamic range and textural range in their voice. Um, it's been only now, maybe in my 40s, I'm like, I guess you could call me a singer. Like, I don't, it doesn't really feel like a main um, identity marker of mine. Um, you know, I was forced to sing in choirs by my parents <laughs> when I was little. So I, I have a very innate sense of harmonies and being on pitch and I can control my voice if you sing a note I can match it harmonize give you a sixth above a sixth any of those kind of basic music theory points that David in all his brilliance still struggles with like I'm like could you sing a third above this note he's like I don't think so you know (laughs) anyway to my point I don't think so not to put myself (laughs) but my point being I've sort of felt like in a box in that way like oh I wish I had more I don't know how to do vibrato you know I don't know how to mimic the sound of other people's voices the way some people can do but what that does give me is the ability to triple my voice pretty easily because I just sing the same notes over and over (laughs) you know um that doesn't feel that hard that song um I um the the chorus is an arpeggio go break some hearts right it's very simple that's a very simple musical concept arpeggio we all know that those series of four notes and the chords under it are a one chord and a four chord which are pretty much the most basic uh chords in the western (laughs) musical canon as well as the five chord but to me that song like that chorus of it is so i can like summon i mean imagine it can bring me to tears right now it is so deeply beautiful to me i can't even express it so when david was working on that song i like was like I am singing this no matter what David you're not gonna sing this one I've got this one and I still feel like it's gonna be covered by some amazing singer with an amazing voice who doesn't have to triple their voice to make it sound incredible so all you beautiful singers out there I hope someone covers that song because to me it's who's the dream crop to cover that oh gosh I uh, don't people don't people in the spot like that don't put me come on Suze <laughs> Um, I mean, the person who I was is thinking it me? with that incredible voice is me, right? Oh, Cindy. No, I was it's thinking Cindy. about. We were all thinking it. <laughs> was Rachel Price with the with Ooh, Rachel yeah. Price oh, Rachel with Price. her um, um, with her the sort of like when someone has the incredible fluency in their voice, right? I mean, she's an, an epitome of vocal fluency, but um, I um, think Natalia Lafourcade. Oh, like yes, yes. I- I'll come back, get back to you on that. There are lots of people I can imagine covering the song. Maybe I'll send it to them. I'll get you to send it, Cindy, and listen. Okay. <laughs> I need to go back to Mexico Where the songs that I know cut as deep and as wide As this old river flows The last track, Back to Mexico... I read is kind of like the counterpoint to the James Taylory 
imagining Mexico and it's about, you know, your real experiences in the country. Who, like, on a specific historical note, who were the 43? Can you educate us and our audience about that story so we can ground ourselves in it? Yeah, so there, I I think it's it's inevitable that there was some, there's some romanticization that happens in the verses, but I wanted um, that bridge where I speak in Spanish, I wanted that to, like, be grounded a little bit more in, in what the reality actually is. And so the 43 it's kind of in the context of the larger drug war in Mexico and the kind of violence of the state and then these paramilitary groups as well. Um, there were 43 students that kind of got caught up that, as far as I know and from what I've read, had nothing to do with the drug war or anything, but they somehow got mislabeled as a, a bus of people that were involved in it. And so some kind of, some kind of paramilitary group disappeared at at first, it just disappeared all 43 students on that bus, and nobody could find out where they were. And the, the state couldn't figure out what had happened to them. Um, but it was just 43 innocent people that got caught up in the drug war. And just like the incredible violence that's, ra- you know, ravaged parts of Mexico. And so they've been, uh, it's been a rallying cry to kind of like for accountability for the state to actually go figure out like what, what happened to these 43 people, find their bodies hold people accountable and it's but it's become symbolic of that happening in so many cases on smaller scale throughout Mexico there have been so many terrible stories of people disappearing and being killed by the drug gangs or by somebody affiliated with kind of narco-terrorism and so I think it was just I've had these experiences where we've been in Mexico and one of the first times Susan and I went down there together we were there was I wanted to take her to these Fandangos that take place in southern Veracruz during the Christmas time and we were in Veracruz and the front page of the newspaper was about kind of uh, these attacks on different buses going through southern Veracruz where different uh, narco groups were were like looking for people or just like there was just like this general terror atmosphere there and so I think that um, it's hard you're kind of holding it this holding these things again at the same time like the beauty of this country like the richness of the culture um, wanting to kind of like acknowledge and celebrate that because so much of the inspiration for this band is coming from that. And then just like the awful reality of what life is like for a lot of people there right now. And so much of that is tied into American consumption of drugs and our kind of the way that we've further militarized that conflict. So it, it's infinitely complex and it just, there's so much tragedy that's come out of that. And so I, I felt like I had to put something in there that acknowledged just did one, you know, that to one small, small line. I know we have a, a lightning round, but I have a question for myself and for our listeners. Who are, like, can you guys name a couple of contemporary um, artists that are in this similar lane um, who, who might have inspired some of the songs on this album, like some Mexican artists that we might not have heard of that we should be listening to? Sure. Well, it's exciting that Natalia Laforcade is getting more well-known, and she's mm-hmm. done incredible work recently with these kind of folk records that she's especially yes. been collaborating with Los Cojolites, which is one of the main Son Jarocho mm-hmm. bands. That has Her toured. version of Hasta la Raiz is unbelievable. It's yeah. like, that's a timeless, timeless recording. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, I love her, and she's done some great versions of Sembrando Las Flores. That's a song by Los Cojolites. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I studied un- with uh, Ramon of Son de Madera, and that's still just like one of my f- favorite Son Jarocho bands, or one of bands in general. 
Um, there's cool bands that are like young and doing a lot of interesting fusion work, like Sonex is a really interesting band. Um, Pajaros del Alba is, is this amazing band that I love from Veracruz that does really interesting arrangements, but in a very traditional styling. I mean, I, we've been friends. When I first went down to st- actually study Son, and I went to the Luna Negra, to the Cojolites, like uh, music camp they run, I met uh, some of the these young uh, artists from L.A. who eventually ended up starting Cafe Terras, which is a, a great American band that has done a lot of awesome fusion work with bringing uh, Son Jarocho into their kind of Southern California influences. All right, everyone has their homework. <laughs> They're further reading and listening. <laughs> I'll link those on the website as I find them. Do you guys, so the one Mexican artist that I really love is Marisa Mur. She's like kind of like a acoustic pop artist and she's very her music videos are very like fun and colorful and Lizzie I played you her song with Alex Cuba yes the yin yang way song. back mm-hmm. yeah her yeah okay, we're, we have to link all of these artists Great. yeah okay. also one of my favorite bands is Ila Bamba mm. yeah, and she's she's been living in Luce has been living in Mexico city recently and she just had this interesting post about kind of navigate kind of for her experience of navigating the culture as someone that grew up mostly in the u.s and it's been you know just kind of how complex it is for her as a mexican-american but she's just made incredible art and incredible music with in spanish and bringing a lot of the the mexican influences into kind of indie rock cool you guys ready to have some fun I know. I feel like it's been a little heavy. I don't. Is that? Yeah. Well, uh, listen. Fun would be nice. I've been. Listen. This is basic folk. Yeah. We're here to go deep, and we're complex. <laughs> I love so it. we're also I... here to laugh. So Susan and David have each done lightning rounds individually. This is a new iteration of the lightning round when uh, you're on as a duo. This is called which one, Lizzie? Would you care to explain the rules? The rules are it's cut. I feel like there was like an, an old TV show like this. Like it's sort of like the newlywed game, but it could be platonic. Basically, we just say a thing and then as quickly as you can, without thinking too hard about it, you say the name of the person in the couple who is who embodies that. So for example, like we could do one with me and Cindy. Well, we'll give you a count with, as well. So Oh yeah, we'll yeah. go one two, three, and then you say the name, both of you simultaneously. Like Should we, we say, say our name in the third person? You would each say yes. your name in the third person. Uh-huh. So third it's either going to be. So which, let's do a sample one with me and Cindy. Okay. Which one has a cat? One, two, three. Cindy. Cindy. Yeah. You get it? It's pretty the, okay. Pretty complicated yeah. concept. Well, the questions are going to be harder than that, so just get ready. Right. Lizzie, do you want to start? Yes. Which one is a better cook? One, one two, two, three. Suze. <laughs> Phew. You get it. Which one is more stylish? One, two, three. Suze. That's what I was going to say, too. <laughs> Me. <laughs> Which one has jokes? One, one two, two, three. 
Three. David. Neither of us. That's what I was going to say, too, but I wanted to... Okay. That's why I cringed. Can you believe we're neither of us are jokesters? We have... A, a, Only on stage. And our, our son is, is going to fill that role for the whole family. We don't... Which one is everyone's friend? One, two, three. Suze. Misanthrope Which one? <laughs> which one remembers names? One, one two, two, three. Three. David. David. Which one remembers birthdays? One, two, three. Now that's complicated because you're the one that's everyone's friend, but you don't remember their names, but you do remember their <laughs> birthdays. That's why partnership is important. Okay. Which one reads more? One, two, three. David, David. by like 200,000%. <laughs> okay, this is the last one. Which one has a sweet tooth? One, two, three. Neither. neither. Wow. Really? <laughs> we should, I should have done more neithers. <laughs> this has been a hard-hitting lightning round. I'm learning a lot. Yeah, me too. Um, Mr. and Mrs. There Museum, oh, yeah. thank you so much for being on Basic Folk. Congratulations on oh. the new album. You must change your life. Thank you guys for the great questions and for spending the time. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all our episodes there. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. Check us out wherever you get podcasts or at our website, basicfolk.com. Thank you for listening. Please share this episode with a friend. Rate, review, subscribe. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.